I'm Andrew Biggers, and you're listening to Squawk Talk. My guest today is Michelle Rigby Assad. She is a former CIA intelligence specialist who worked throughout regions of the Middle East in the field of counterterrorism alongside her husband. As if that weren't interesting enough, Michelle's years of experience are only made more fascinating by the gripping stories of her intense training near-death experiences, time spent working undercover, and many more. These stories, as well as several others, can be found in Michelle's acclaimed book, Breaking Cover, which is available on Amazon.com. I was fortunate enough to speak with Michelle, as she claims she has a soft spot for college students. Our conversation took place via Zoom, on September 14th, 2020. You, I heard you say that you had very little interest in becoming a spy or intelligence specialist. Um, I heard you say you wanted to become a ballerina. Right. How did your career with the CIA actually start? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I didn't know that actually being a spy or an intelligence officer was even a real job. So it would never occur to me to want to do something of that nature. And I wanted to be a ballerina when I was younger. And then later on, I wanted to be a pediatrician or a pharmacist. And when I first started college and I was where you are right now in a dorm room, I thought I was going to be a pharmacist. And then I went on a couple of mission trips. So my first mission trip uh, was to Egypt to work in an orphanage. And the second mission trip was to distribute Bibles and minister to people in Russia and Ukraine right after the fall of the Soviet Union. And then after that, I know that was like crazy cool. Then after that, I did a semester abroad um, as a junior and I went to Egypt for a semester, so Cairo. And then... um, also traveled to Israel and the Palestinian territories as well during that time period. And I tell you what, I came back to college and I remember this crisis, like I, I, I thought I knew what I wanted to do with my life, but this does not feel right. I am not meant to be a pharmacist. I am meant to do something else, but I didn't know, Andrew, what in the world that was. I knew it was going to involve something travel related. I knew it was going to involve foreign cultures on a very gut level or maybe a spiritual level. I can say that. And I had no idea what form that would take. Um, So in the absence of any further direction from God on that issue, I just started trying to um, study the Middle East because every time I pray about it, that's all I got was learn Middle East, get abroad, learn. Uh, study everything you can. So I, I changed my my major um, from pre-med major to political science because that was as close as I could get to something international at my university. Uh, if I'd had the 
option to do like foreign affairs or something like that, I would have done that. But poli-sci was as close as I could get. So I changed my major, graduated from college, got married, moved to Washington, DC, and uh, just kept praying for God's direction in my life over and over and over again. And I got to tell you, I didn't get a whole lot. Like all I got was study the Middle East. And I was bored and have much money, but the little bit that I had, you know, I, I, I finally got a um, administrative assistant job in DC. And on the side, I would take night classes in Arabic because it's what I afford. And I, I just did one little step at a time. And that took me to um, getting a master's degree in Arab studies from Georgetown. Uh, I've never actually met a spy before. Do you, you, you consider yourself a spy, correct? I guess that's a technical term, but um, I guess that's a fun term, but technical term would be intelligence officer. Yeah, spy doesn't sound very formal, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but um, are you a fan of the spy genre? Are you a fan of James Bond or Mr. and Mrs. Smith? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, for us, we, my husband and I will laugh a lot at them. Like, oh, if only it was like that. Um, but it's fun. It's, it's a form of escape. And, and we love to cue in on like, oh, wow, they got a little piece of truth right there. That is so cool. They did that. Well, so, so um, yeah. My follow-up was going to be, uh, you know, comparing the average moviegoer's perception of what the CIA does when you're actually in the field doing what the CIA does, would you say that there's any kind of accuracy within that or is it mostly just fiction? It's mostly fiction. Um, and the reason why I say that is because in, in the movies, I've got to make it very fast moving and, and, you know, people shooting at each other. It's very physical, but, um, and the life of an intelligence officer and the type of operations that we have, it's more of like a mind game or an intellectual exercise. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that's not very exciting to put on film, but um, having to think through every aspect of an operation and plan it out and plan every detail, you know, weeks before you carry it out is, um, it takes a while. And then um, the fact that after you have this very, very exciting meeting that, uh, you know, takes place over a few hours period, then you spend a week writing it up in reports because in the, in the agency, they say, if you don't write it up, it didn't happen. So you've got to capture the results of your operational meetings for um, CIA headquarters. Um, you have to capture your intelligence and put that into an intelligence report to send it back to the president and policymakers so they can use that information. So there's a lot that, so the operational act itself is exciting, but what goes into preparing for that is mind numbingly, <laughs> like maybe boring to the outsiders, at least parts of it. Yeah. You can't escape the paperwork. No, can escape paperwork. Absolutely. No. And oh. so you have to be a good writer. So that's the one thing that you might not know about being a, an intelligence officer is how important it is to be able to capture complicated thoughts and write well, as well as being a people person. So you have to learn how to recruit a source, which means you got to develop that person and you have to pitch somebody to be a spy, which is a big deal, obviously. So you have to have an enormous amount of people skills. And then you also, you know, have to be an intellectual, you have to know how to write. So it's an interesting combination of 
skill sets that they're looking for um, for the CIA. Now, when you say recruit, are you yourself actually recruiting these people to collaborate with you? Or would someone come across you and say, hey, this is you know the person you need to reach out to? All the above. All of the above. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, sources come to us from many different directions. Some you identify yourself. Um, and then sometimes they fall in your lap. And yeah, it's an interesting process. Well, and I, I'm going to try my best because your story is just very, very interesting. And I would love to try and get it in proper sequence. Um, so just starting from the top, I guess, your first letter from the CIA was a rejection letter for an analyst position. What was that feeling like after receiving it? It was such, such a terrible feeling. I went through the entire vetting process to get into the CIA during my final year at Georgetown, getting my master's. And then I got my degree and I was about to start that job. So it was just like two weeks, two or three weeks away from starting that job. And then I get this letter from the CIA that said, I, I no longer met the requirements for this position. And so don't show up for work in two, week, two weeks. And I was like, what just happened? What did I do? Yeah, what did I do? Like, <laughs> I didn't do anything. What did I do? So years later, a couple years later, I learned that there's a whole different side of the CIA. So I had been hired to be an analyst. And they're the people who take the intelligence and make some sense, try to make sense out of it for policymakers. But then there's the other side, and they're the collectors of intelligence. And I then, my husband and I went through the process of applying to the agency to the operation side of the house. And once I actually, it took me a couple of years in the agency to figure out that I had never actually done anything to jeopardize my employment. They simply overhire for positions, assuming some will not get through the background investigation. And so that maybe like they had, they had one or two slots for an analyst. They hired five people and they took the first two who finished their background investigations quickest. And the, the rest are left without a job. But what was fascinating to me to realize was that had I gotten into the CIA as an, age, um, an analyst, I could have never switched and gone to the other side of operations. So I would have been at a computer behind a desk in the DC area for my entire career. And God had something completely different in mind. So what that rejection was, I realized that sometimes God allows rejection to occur to get us off of a wrong path and get us on the right path. And obviously it's painful, it hurts, it's awful to experience, but that, that course correct was critical to preparing me for a life overseas and to be doing um, CIA operations, which was just a completely different kind of job. Despite how unpleasant it was at the time, I'm sure. Oh gosh, it felt, felt awful. And I, boy, talk about, you know, those moments of self-doubt. Oh, they came crashing in, you know, like, what did I do? Why am I not good enough? Why did I get rejected by the CIA? Like, what do they think about me? It was awful. And like, it was just really hard getting a job, period. And then, so Joseph, my husband, ended up, we, we both went to, through this process. He got in. And then a few months later, so he actually started CIA training. And then I was told, you're going to start the next class of trainees. 
in a couple months. Like you finished your background investigation. Of course, I've gone through like an entire almost year of vetting again. And as I was told that, like within probably a few days of this, we got attacked on 9-11. Wow. World Trade Center and plane flew into the Pentagon and the last plane uh, was taken down in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And of course the world stopped and changed on a dime. So this, I love telling this story because you, you just have to remember constantly when you're a young person, when you're a student and you're trying to make your way, you don't know what's around the corner, but God does. And it may feel like he's giving you no <laughs> very minimal helpful guidance, but he gave me everything I needed that took me to a place to be part of a war on terror that I didn't even know was going to occur. I had no idea this terrorist attack was going to change our country and change our world. And here we were, here is my husband who's a persecuted Christian from Egypt who dealt with Islamic extremism growing up. And then this, this kid from Central Florida who just had this... Um, just this passion to understand and learn Arab culture. Here we are, right in the CIA, ready to go, right in a moment of our country's, you know, like the greatest need. And so God knew what we did not. After witnessing the September 11th attacks, did you feel at all angry or more compelled to get involved and get out into the field? So as those attacks were occurring, Joseph and I knew exactly, you know, once we saw the first um, World Trade Center building hit, there was like some doubt of what, what, what's happening. As soon as the second plane hit, we knew immediately it was bin Laden. We knew it was Al-Qaeda. Most Americans didn't even know what Al-Qaeda was at that point in time. We knew, and we knew exactly, bam, this is where God wants us. And this is exactly what we were meant to do with our lives. Like, it just felt like it was very invigorating to know that you have the skill set and the, the knowledge you need to do this thing in front of you, this calling, this job that's more than a calling. And so, yeah, it was very exciting to feel that. Um, your passions line up with a very great need. Absolutely. You mentioned that you had gone through the vetting process again. So you went through it twice, I'm assuming. Yes. Um, I don't know how much you could disclose about that, but if there's anything you can disclose, I would love to know what that process is like. Yeah, actually, they cleared for me to disclose uh, quite a bit of that process. Um, so you have to go through multiple interviews, and the idea is to make these interviews um, long enough so that your personality really comes out. You know, so if you talk to someone long enough, they're going to have a good chance to see not just like your contrived persona, but your real like personality and what, like what makes you tick. Right. So you have these really long interviews and then you have multiple phone calls where they quiz you on foreign affairs to see if you have a clue what's going on in the world, see if you're well read. And then once you've gone through several, um, several of these like sifting efforts, and they say, hey, we think we really like this person. And we really, this is the kind of person we're looking for to hire. Then you have to go through psyche vows, physical, um, physical evaluations. Oh, you have to do, you have to meet with psychologists or psychiatrists. You have to go through a batteries, batteries of tests. And then you've got the polygraph, which is 
horrible. <laughs> I, don't know. I hate the polygraph. Why, why is the polygraph horrible? The polygraph is horrible if you have a conscience. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a sociopath, it's like no big deal. Because right. you don't ever feel guilty about anything. So truly, like, actually, I, I worked alongside sociopaths who worked at the agency. Like, they had no trouble. <laughs> no trouble with really? that. <laughs> um, but, it, but if you, so you're taught growing up, like, even if you think of a sin, it's like, you know, God sees your heart, and it's as if you already sinned. And so Catholic guilt or evangelical <laughs> guilt or Mormon guilt, man, that stuff shows up on polygraphs. It lights it up and, and you know, it looks, I always like joke um, whenever I went in for a polygraph and they started asking me questions, it, uh, the needle went crazy and you'd think that I just killed a person in the other room <laughs> and in there, like what just happened? Um, so anyway, for me, they were always difficult to get through. It does not sound that pleasant. Um, yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, you just mentioned something, uh, working alongside sociopaths. Do you think that requirements for working in such a high stress level job might require some level of sociopathy? I'm not, I'm not calling you a sociopath. <laughs> no. Uh, no, the problem with sociopaths, so this is the weird thing about the CIA. They say, we're hiring you because we believe that you're, <laughs> you're fundamentally a pretty, pretty honest person. Um, we need you to go out there and lie because we need you to live a cover. So we're going to give you a false cover and you've got to live your entire life around that cover. So it's going to require lying about who you really are and what you're really doing. Um, but we need you to be honest because you are, you are collecting information in these operational meetings that is a matter of life and death. And we have to trust what you report back to us is what actually happened in a meeting. It's what your source actually said. And because you're dealing with such sensitive issues, you have to be trustworthy. So it's this weird thing. We want honest people who can lie. That's yes. very interesting. Um, yeah. And something else that I find very interesting and is just totally out of Hollywood is the fact that you're, you're working with your husband. What is that like? <laughs> um. Actually, it worked out really, really well for us because we were both, um, our expertise was the same. So it's not like you had one China expert and one Russia expert. You've got two Airbus, so that's great. So they're not going to be sending you in two different directions, which obviously is critical. Right. Um, and we were living because of our expertise. We were sent to the really, really tough places, very dangerous places. And so the fact that you had your spouse up by your side was... Um, I don't know, for us, it was critical. Like I couldn't have done it by myself, but every time we left the, the house or we left the place that we worked, we were very cognizant of hostile surveillance, um, people wanting to attack us or um, target us because of who we are. And so to have two sets of eyes, um, to have both of you that are fully trained and skilled and looking for potential problems was really useful. And so working in the same office, working on the same topics, it was kind of like, you know, we see, as Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, and that's for us what it was. But I also don't pretend that, like, you know, it's easy on a marriage because it, it was very, very difficult on a marriage, too. Um, the, the amount of stress that you deal with, the the difficulty of what you do day in and day out definitely wears on you. So it's like, uh, it's an interesting experience to go through that kind of um, 
a career like side by side with your spouse? For sure. I know that, um, you know, I just hear stories about couples working together at just an office and they talk about it being, you know, kind of tasking. So that's, that's gotta be a whole nother level. Um, (laughs) Yeah. What, how would you describe uh, women's role in the central intelligence agency? So um, it was a very, it was a big surprise to me um, because when I got in, I, you know, there were a lot of women in my class, in my training class, and I don't think you can talk about numbers, and I won't, but what was uh, disturbing to me was that men and women were put into different job roles based on gender, not on skill set or your talent or your experience, and so I got pushed in a particular role as a woman, and my husband got put in the more operational field role than I was. Um, and this was pretty much how it was done across the board. Uh, a few exceptions, but um, I found that to be very 1950s. And I thought, you know, why are you, why are you training me to do all this stuff? And then you're like, nope, go sit in the office. Like you can't deal with terrorists because you're a female and we just don't think women are capable of dealing with these really uh, paternalistic people. Um, and to a certain extent, they're right in the sense these guys are not fans of women, you know, or, and they don't think very highly of women's capabilities. Uh, they don't respect women who are not at home raising babies and taking care of their families. Right. So that's true. But what I found, what I discovered during my CIA career was what mattered more than that was my intellect and my determination to, to win, to do well. And so when I finally got the opportunity to, to get into operations with insurgents and terrorists, what I found was I had this huge disadvantage as a female. I was completely like the deck was stacked against me. And I was like, yep, but you know what? God put me here. He must know that I'm capable. And so I eventually learned that my knowledge of Arab culture, which I had worked so hard to learn, helped me to get over these challenges. And I was able to like flip it upside down. And I took my enormous disadvantage and I made it my advantage. And I got to the point where I was able to get intelligence out of these bad guys that no one else could get. Because I look different, because I sound different, because I behave differently, um, because I was, you know, um, I shocked them. You know, I would shock them when I walked into the room and I was smart and I used my brain to to figure out how to get what I needed um so it was a very interesting revelation in my own mind oh I I don't doubt it there's a different well because you're a very lively outgoing person right and that is something that is not at all embraced when it comes to the feminine uh culture over there it's not embraced in public like they're allowed to be themselves in at home but you don't act certain ways in public right what 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 kind of people were you primarily engaging with and talking to so if you think about it like if so if you're a counterterrorism officer your entire mission is to obtain intelligence about the plans and intentions of terrorists of bad guys right um so if you're going to do that who has access to that intel so it's either somebody who is a terrorist who's part of the group or is tangentially 
connected to the group. So a family member or maybe somebody in the support system who is providing money or or cars or a safe house for these individuals. So basically anybody who has access to that kind of intelligence, that's what we were dealing with. That's what we we're looking for. That's what we wanted. And again, I, I mean, I wouldn't imagine that they would just 100% of the time come to you, but I would imagine a, a decent amount, right? Like they, like you said earlier, they would just kind of fall out of this, fall out of the sky, right? Yes, and we had, uh, you know, creative ways that we could engineer um, interactions with people we were interested in. And I can't say a whole lot about that, but yeah, uh, it, was, it was fascinating to see. And a fascinating psychology, so here you are, you're the ultimate enemy. You're an American. Uh, they assume you're an infidel. I mean, I actually had Muslim colleagues, but, you know, <laughs> these bad guys assumed we were all infidels. Right. Um, so you are so the enemy. Why in the world would these people want to talk to you or deal with you or have a relationship with the CIA? Um, so the idea is you have to figure out what motivates them and you've got to find a way to get on the same side, essentially. Like we're working for the same objective um, and you have to figure out what their motives are so you can speak to those motives. In, in a way that makes sense to them. Do you ever have, well, you probably can't get into this. Um, do they ever ask anything from Uncle Sam? It's like, well, I can tell you what's going down next Thursday, but I need a little motivation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. In yeah. fact, that's the vast majority of what we dealt with was were those, those kinds of requests. And the difficulty here, Andrew, most people think, oh, yeah, it's so hard to collect intelligence when in fact it's really not difficult to collect, but it is extremely hard to figure out what's useful and what's a lie. Because when you need money or you know, you're desperate to put food on the table for your family of 10 and it's a war zone and it's a non-functioning economy, you'll do anything you need to do to get paid, to get money, to get your hands on resources. So if that means lying to the CIA, I mean, that's what you do. So our job is not easy one. It is, you just, so much information is thrown at you and you've got to figure out what is legitimate, what is useful, what is truly secret, and what is it that, what's going to actually disrupt a terrorist attack from occurring. And that's a very important job, <laughs> you know? Yes, um, it is. <laughs> um, it, forgive me if this is too forward, but was there ever a moment in which you thought to yourself, I'm not coming back. This, this is it. Roll credits. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, indeed. I had, I had multiple moments where I thought, oh, oh boy, is, is this how it goes? <laughs> is it? So I don't, um, I have a story in breaking cover, which is on my list of like top five scariest moments of my life. And I was essentially driving to work by myself in a country that was one of the kidnapping and carjacking capitals of the world. And thankfully, the CIA gave us this really awesome paramilitary training after we passed our tradecraft training, which lasted a year. And the idea was they, they taught us if you're ever in an ambush situation, here, here's ways to get out of it. And here's what you can do. You can use your vehicle as a weapon. Um, and your vehicle is your best protection. And my husband and I had 
Joseph and I had talked about this at great length. You, like you can never get taken in this country because you will get your head cut off. There is no coming back. Nobody was ever negotiated for and brought back. And so you cannot get taken, period. That's it. So this is in the back of my mind when I was by myself, Joseph was out of the country and driving to work and a man stopped in front of my car. And um, then I was blocked in by vehicles behind me and beside me. And I had a moment where I realized I'm being boxed in and this guy in front of me won't, won't leave. He's, he's just being very stubborn and he won't get out of the way. And now I see that men, local men from all over are starting to come towards the car to see what's inside of this car. And because um, my head wasn't covered and uh, it was just apparently too exciting for this individual. And um, it, this is a country where everybody has an AK slung over their shoulder. And this is also a place where foreigners were being kidnapped as targets of opportunity, meaning they weren't like devising these grand kidnapping operations. They would just like, oh my gosh, there's a white person. They're worth a lot of money. So the tribesmen would kidnap targets of opportunity and sell them to Al-Qaeda for money. So we were worth a lot of money. Wow. And I was like, okay. Um, as I see that like dozens of men are starting to close in on my car, I'm realizing that I am fast approaching a situation I will not be able to get out of. Because if this car is surrounded by men, I'm going to get taken. I'm by myself. I don't have a weapon. I'm the only one without a weapon. And I, in that moment, I followed through on my training without even thinking about it. I just realized it's either this guy or me. It's either him or me. And it's not going to be me. So God forgive me. I had to hit him twice with my car in order to get him to move out of the way. Thank God I didn't have to run him over. But I have to be honest and say that I was prepared to do that if I had to. Because I was not going to get taken, kidnapped, and sold to Al-Qaeda. No, that's not how your story ends, obviously. No, it definitely didn't end that way. So it worked out. Thank God. But it was, you know, I finally got the guy to move after hitting him twice. And I did not stop for one more stop sign or stoplight the whole way to work. And I'm telling you that um, I was shaking for like two hours. And this was just on your way to work. Just on my way to work. Yep. Are you, uh, are you at liberty to say where this took place? Unfortunately, no. no. I just, you know, I, I, this is a really hard place, man. Well, no, but, th but this is very cool for me. Just, you know, actually hearing from someone that's, you know, not an actor or, you know, a, a joker that, uh, sorry, that's classified. <laughs> you know, that's kind of cool. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I, you have to be willing to do something like that. You know, it, it's him or me. It, it's it, me. How do you stay r remotely composed, mentally speaking, in a situation like that? Um, that is a great question. I think that one of the things they're looking for when they're vetting you and they're asking a lot of questions to see if you're good CIA material is if you can handle a lot of stress. And so they will ask you things about, you know, stressful periods of your life. And of course, when to see how you describe them and how you manage them. 
And then of course, through training, they're putting you through very, very stressful situations. They're play acting, they're role playing. And the idea is to turn up the heat and see how you fare. And there are people who couldn't take it. And they either dropped out of the program or they were told this isn't for you. Um, so uh, we're being assessed for our ability to handle stress constantly. And because you go through all this intense training, you're learning to focus. It's when you lose focus that things go uh, out of control. And so I think that's why I say like, I didn't even like think to myself, oh, this is just like training scenario. It was such a, like a guttural instinctual thing. Clearly the training worked very well. I was just simply focused on got to get out of here. <laughs> that was my one thought. Got to get out of here. Yep. Like I, I, I think we, we were doing so well with, you know, going on a linear timeline here. And then of <laughs> course my curiosity uh, did away with that, but Going back to your first tour, were your expectations prior to actually getting out into the field anything like what the reality of where you were was? I definitely could have worded that better. <laughs> no, but totally, that's a great question. Um, I did not know what to expect. So you're put through this training and I, I remember all me and my colleagues were like, but what is it like in the real world? And they're like, well, we have made in training it as difficult as possible so that when you get to the real world, you're going to feel like, oh, I actually can breathe. Um, that being said, I had already traveled all over the Middle East. I had been to several countries. And of course, I lived abroad as a student studying. And I, I, had, I had so much on the ground experience. But the place that was our first tour was so difficult, was so different than the rest of the Middle East, a good way to explain it to you would be other Arabs who went to this country found it so difficult, they often left. And, um, you know, like a, a businessman would come with his family and like months later, the family was going back to their country of origin. They're like, I, I ain't staying here. Like even for Arabs, it was culture shock. So for me, obviously, the culture shock was pretty extreme and um, it was a very long two-year tour. I mean, <laughs> I look back now, I'm like, how did we get through that? And sometimes you just get through it because you put one foot and stop the other and one day at a time. Absolutely. I, yeah, I mean, I, I get stressed out just going to media law or one of my normal classes. I cannot imagine composing myself in a situation like that. Um, yeah, I didn't know again, if I was going to be any good at the job, I didn't know really half what I was doing uh, and I had to figure it out. Um, so there was a lot of kind of like on the job, self-training, figuring things out. Um, in, in, the best, in the best kind of world, you'd have management that would mentor you. Um, unfortunately, I didn't really have that. Uh, I didn't have really good management until later on in my career, once I kind of figured everything out on my own. But um, yeah, so there was a lot of, uh, I made a lot of mistakes before I did things right. Well, I'm right there with you. Um, <laughs> if you had the opportunity to talk to your former self, would you encourage your younger self to, yes, do it. It's going to be life-changing. This is who you are. Or would you say, 
maybe not. Maybe maybe go into you know pharmaceuticals. Yeah, um, I wouldn't change anything about my path. Uh, what I would tell myself is, um, I know you don't have confidence. I know you second guess yourself all the time. I know you always doubt whether you have what it takes, but you do have what it takes. Plus, you will discover you are so much more talented than you realize you're so much smarter than you realize and you can take so much more stress than you realize like like you're not even sure right now how to get through whatever class um trust me you're gonna get through a lot more and you're gonna achieve a lot of really cool things but it's none of it's gonna be hard but it's all gonna be worth it very little uh comes free in life as they say what made you want to write Breaking Cover? Um, so I was towards the end of my tenure career in the agency. And um, I really I really felt like I heard the voice of God tell me to write this book. Um, and I have to be careful about how I say that. I can only say that in certain venues. But to a faith-based crowd, I want to be very clear that that was not my idea. I didn't even like the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I used to think like writing a book that sounds like the worst thing ever <laughs> so it wasn't like oh it was part of it was on my bucket list and I was like let's go do that no it was really God was like it's time to write your book and I was like I was like Moses in the burning bush are you talking to me like why are you asking me to do this you know I'm not capable of this he's like yes you are and I I'm like you know I don't have the contacts to make this happen he's like I will bring them to you as you need them. You will meet the right people at the right places and time to get this accomplished. Trust me. I'm like, I don't know how to write this. I don't know how to write a book. I don't even think I'm smart enough for this. And I felt like, like the Holy Spirit said, pretend like you're on a stage and write the book like you're on a stage. Because um, strangely enough, I know most people think this is the weirdest thing. I love speaking. And I have no uh, stage fright. I, I believe that's a gift from God. And so if I could conceptualize it as um, not writing, but um, standing on a stage and sharing my story, that's then how I uh, started writing the book. Well, you you just answered one of my questions I was saving for later with what has generated more fear for you, the uh, you know time with the CIA or time promoting your book. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's interesting, but that that is certainly a gift. I I still have stage fright. I still get nervous in front of the microphone. You know, I, I from what I've read of your book thus far, there needs to be a screenplay. You know, there's oh, that's kind of very kind of you. <laughs> Thank no, you. No, well, the story it it is truly riveting. And I I mean I I again I can't thank you enough just for you know taking time to share it with me um, on a more uh, personal level. So you, you say that, you know, people did things just kind of fell into place with the book. But I should also point out it took seven years. Seven years. <laughs> oh, Andrew, I might take a long time to get there, <laughs> but I get there by the grace of God. I just envisioned, you know, Penguin Publishing, you know, calling <laughs> on your phone as soon as you were having doubts. Seven <laughs> years. Seven years, brother, seven years. And I mean, there was, again, I, nothing for me has ever been easy. I'm telling you, it has been a climb up the mountain. I look at other people, I'm like, wow, <laughs> look how easy that was for them. Not for me, nope. Um, 
it took seven years and the majority of that was just convincing a literary agent to represent me. Um, once I finally got representation, I got the book deal pretty quickly, but it was probably uh, five years of knocking on doors and people looking at me like, who the heck are you? Yeah, not interested. And so I, because if you can imagine, Andrew, like your, your whole life, you've kind of grown up in the, the digital age and social media age. For my generation, it's, um, it started taking off when I was where you are now in college. And then as things were taking off with social media, we're hired by the CIA and we're undercover and we're eschewing social media. We are running from it. We don't want to be mentioned online. We don't want to have a thousand contacts. We don't want to tell people where we are and what we're doing. So as the world is heading in one direction, we're heading in the complete opposite direction. And so um, to write a book and get it published is very difficult because publishers want someone with a built-in audience. They expect a certain number of Twitter, followers, Facebook friends, and LinkedIn connections. And once you can show them that you've got your own audience that you're going to market to, th that's what it requires to get a book deal. And I didn't have that. But I also said, I have an amazing story. I have a lot of amazing stories. I have no social media platform, um, but you're going to have to fall in love with the story. And so eventually somebody did. I, I I can't believe it took that long for someone to fall in love with. I think they were, they might've just been bluffing. Um, <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think it's very interesting just the fact that like, you know, you, you say that things have been hard and I, I don't, I'm not saying they haven't been hard, but they have seemed to have worked out very well for you. Would you agree? I, I agree. Absolutely. And um, I'm so grateful. And I think that that's why I said yes to you. And you're like shocked you and you gave me the invitation. <laughs> for the reason why I said yes is because I have such a soft spot in my heart for college students and people who are newly graduated because it was so painful for me to find my path. It was so difficult. And I had so many rejections. Um, and I spent a lot of time wondering what was wrong with me. And what I eventually realized was God was preserving me for a path that I could not conceive. If he had allowed me to get a job A, B, C, D, E, F, G, I would have gone in totally different directions. Um, so rejections were absolutely a vehicle that God used to make sure I got where he needed me to go. And so I often tell people, because we, you know, it's a very subconscious thing that we do. We think, um, pain and difficulty means I'm not doing something right. Correct? Oh, it's, oh very uh, true. I'm not trying hard enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, but I'm here to tell you that occasionally that might be a sign something's wrong, but in many cases it's not. And so I, I really like talking about this whole self-doubt and anxiety thing, because if you are doing every, everything you can to pray and listen for God's voice and, and listen to the little things he says and he whispers into your spirit. If you take those steps, they will get you somewhere, but don't equate difficulty with being on the wrong path. And my life is like one big shout out that that is definitely the case. Like, um, and so when I had doubt about what in the world I was supposed to be doing, I had to fall back on, well, the last thing he told me was like, study the Middle East. Okay, I take as many Arabic courses as I can get my hands on. 
Uh, I got Arabic workbooks and tape cassettes. This is the days before you could just pull that stuff up on the internet. And I'd sit in my room and I'd teach myself how to write Arabic or <laughs> read Arabic. So I focused on uh, developing my expertise in the absence of an opportunity. So I was building myself up so that when the opportunity presented itself and came along, I was ready. Ready and waiting. Absolutely. Waiting and waiting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely ready. Yeah. Um, was there any difficulty coming back from any of your tours adjusting to normal American life? It was uh, very jarring. So the, the counterculture shock of returning to the United States, you know, especially at war zones, uh, places where it took, you know, 36 hours to get back from wherever you started, man, you'd hit the ground. And so for me, it would be either DC or Florida. I'm like looking around, like you no know, bombs are exploding. Um, everybody's calm and everything's okay. And um, coming off that stress, coming off of being running around, working so hard and not even having time to sleep or eat or use the bathroom, like no joke, you just didn't, there wasn't time to do hardly anything. Um, it was really hard to like slow back down again, de-stress, let it go. Um, if a car backfired, we were like dropping to the ground. We live in Central Florida, so when the space shuttles or the rockets come back into the atmosphere and they make a sonic boom, I mean, there's this very funny time we were in a mall and and something came back down into the atmosphere and, you know, boom, if you never heard that before, it's like it shakes everything. And Joseph and I had just come back from Baghdad. So a year of oh, no. <laughs> explosions and car bombs and rockets and craziness. And we were like, on the floor in Macy's <laughs> thinking a car bomb just went off like well it's just instinctive at that point I would imagine oh yeah totally instinctive absolutely and it was embarrassing as you can imagine um and that that we felt that for for years it took from until that finally like left our system wow yeah I mean and I would go to the grocery store and I'd be like so overwhelmed because it was like which of the salad, hundred salad dressings do I choose? Like, where did all these choices come from? <laughs> well, that's so funny you say that. One of my favorite movies, The Hurt Locker, you know, Jeremy Renner's character, he's, you know, defusing bombs and then he comes back to, you know, American life and he's just trying to decide what cereal to buy. Yeah. And it's just all this variety and it's just a total shock. Like, what, what has been going on since I've, since I've been away? More cereal. <laughs> weird it's very strange and um and i can say that if you're ever dealing with someone from the military or whomever that's just come back from abroad i know that everybody's different but i know in general people are kind of scared to like ask you questions but joseph and i found it very healing to talk about what we've been through and we 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 welcomed opportunities to share and um and so when people said well do you want to talk about it we're like yeah actually we do and then, of course, we couldn't go into, you know, secret details, but right. I mean, a lot we could say um, safely and, um, and it was very cathartic, the process of kind of explaining, you know, where you were 36 hours ago and <laughs> what you were doing. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, is there classified information that you know that you wish you're just dying to share with people? Oh, but you know, it, many warded it, terrorist attacks that never made the press for one reason or another. They were classified for this reason or another. And I'm like, man, I wish I could talk about 
that one time or that other time and you know can't yeah sorry you know, the, the, you know, the good attacks are the ones you guys never hear about because thankfully we thwart them and they don't happen so absolutely <laughs> yeah. yeah um i was gonna say you know if that's not a loaded question i don't know what is um <laughs> If you could offer a piece of advice to anybody that's looking into or is just slightly interested in doing something similar along the lines of what you you did um, in the realm of intelligence gathering, mm -hmm. what would that piece of advice be? So my advice is to become an expert on something. Okay, so you so it doesn't matter if you're talking about CIA or you're talking about foreign affairs or cybersecurity or whatever finance something outside of intelligence. What you want to do is become an expert on something that matters to people. So the fact that I had a master's degree in Arab studies, I had studied the Arab world, I had traveled there, I had learned the language decently, um, I understood politics and culture. I mean, that was what sold me to the CIA. So I, you've got, so people who just have a degree say, a general degree in foreign affairs, that's not going to do it, okay? Because think about how many students or young graduates have a degree in foreign affairs or international relations. It's not enough. So to market yourself and also just to be an awesome, to have an awesome career, you want to specialize in something. So if that's I am going to learn China inside and out, I mean, just read the headlines. You'll see what's going to be valuable to the world, right? Um, I am going to, I mean, cybersecurity is hot, 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 hot. And there's so many different aspects of cybersecurity. There's cybersecurity from the tech point of view or policy. So I just tell people, find something that interests you. And then, man, you become, you learn everything you can about it. That's your job. And the rest will come. When you studied Arabic and the Middle East as a whole, were you driven by passion? Was this your passion? You said, I know this is what I'm going to do. I, I, it was such a passion. And I, I think a big part of that was, um, well, first of all, the, you know, the experience of, of, uh, of working there, like, um, doing my volunteer work in the orphanage, but my husband, I had never met someone from Egypt and I certainly didn't even know there were Christians there and to understand about Islam and how it persecutes those who don't believe. And I was really trying to understand this culture that says you have to believe Islam by threat of death. You can't leave Islam. And by con our constitution, Sharia law, you're not equal if you're not Muslim. And I was so fascinated to be like, what is this? Like, why? And uh, I was so passionate to understand the whys and, um, and to make sense of that. And hearing what my husband went through as a minority where he grew up really fed into that. And he also was very critical, Andrew, in helping me understand it, the nuances of Arab culture that you can't get in a book, you know, and I would have an experience on the streets of Cairo and I would, I'd say to him, why did that just happen? And why did he look at me like that? I was digging in, man. I wanted to understand it backwards and forwards. And why did he say that to you? And why did he respond in that way? And then Joseph was very, like he has a very amazing gift of being able to explain those things. And so for me, yeah, Arab world, Middle East was definitely a passion and more of a passion to understand because it was so different than anything that I knew or had grown up with.
just looking at the footage we see in daily news coverage of any region in the Middle East, really, it all looks so alien compared to what we have here in in the United States and not even for worse. uh, No, but just very different. Different. So, Um, and and that difference is fascinating. Absolutely. And I also find it so interesting. You know, we also think, you know, the Middle East is a monolith, but it's not like, such vast differences even within one country and how very different egypt is from libya is from saudi arabia is from lebanon is from um tunisia they're so vastly different and and then taking on the challenge of like i want to i want to understand libya or i really want to understand egypt uh is really fun and interesting last thing i promise uh thank you Keep asking the great well, questions. Well, thank you. Well, you. You mentioned that when the age of information was really just, you know, winding up, really getting going with, you know, Facebook rolling out No4 and, um, you know, just so on from there. Had, did you notice just from your first tour to in between, you know, that time in between until your last tour, did you notice a steep or any kind of change within procedures when working because of that? technological development um there were there were some there were some um probably not enough yeah we're we're pretty slow on the tech side in the u.s government writ large uh we're pretty like for instance the, the u.s government is still trying to figure out like are we supposed to be making any kind of policy on like these issues uh, so we're, we're not we're not good we're not good in that area so I don't think we made as many changes as we should have. Um, we were still trying to figure out what the heck was going on <laughs> with social media and how it was affecting what kind how, how does that impact our operations? Um, and since I left the agency, it's even gotten that much more difficult. Oh, I'm sure. Well, and you know, I, I was watching that again, I've referenced it a few times now. Uh, the Megan Kelly interview, you referenced, um, uh, you referenced that female spy from, I think, was that World War II? Yes, yes, yes. Um, why am I, of course, blanking on her name, but. Um, I, I, I just had it. Oh, my word. Um, yeah, I, mean, I wrote it in my book and I can't remember it. Um, <laughs> embarrassing. She's amazing. Yeah. Um, it, when I, when, you know, when I heard you kind of recall her story, it seems like with all the surveillance technology that is at our disposal now, let alone when the war uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, was initiated, it seems to have like really intensified, right? Like uh, there's surveillance through yes. just about any and every avenue, technologically speaking, from your phone, your computer. Do you think that we're still behind on that front or do you think that maybe we're too far ahead? Well, it depends on if you're talking about um, defensive operations or offensive ops. So if you can imagine, offensive operations are getting more and more difficult in the age of, you know, cameras everywhere. Okay, so that that has to change how we do things, right? Um, And that's going to change, that's going to really upend, uh, like, the human world. Defensive ops, that helps us. So the very thing that hurts us and harms us, if you're being defensive counterintelligence, you know, those you know, cameras are useful. Well, it's just, it's interesting to think about the traditional view of the spy slowly, you know, dissipating due to the camera, the camera Uh, being everywhere. 
Yeah, I mean, if you are fascinated by really the golden age of I, what I think is the golden age of spying, it is World War II. And I mean, look at Churchill and the, the spying that was done in order to, um, oh gosh, understand the Nazi threat. That really was, they, they did some amazingly cool stuff back then. Um, uh, the Soviet era was very interesting for the, the encounter intelligence threat that we faced with the Soviets was so huge. And that made that game, that spy game really intriguing. Um, and you know, with the war on terror, it turned it into like really our focus, our focus was counterterrorism, so much so. So it was a whole different era and we got really good at um, dismantling terrorist networks. Very good at that, we're excellent at that. But if you're talking about like that traditional spying, it's it is. Um, well, I've never tried it, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming it's pretty tough. Uh, I'm, I'm not fast or uh, sneaky at all. Uh, definitely not light on my feet. But Michelle, thank you so much. Seriously. You're very, very welcome. And I wish you and your fellow students all the best as you guys try to find the path that God has for you. And I would just recommend if any of you struggle breaking cover, I know it's self-promotion, but here we go. It really, I wrote it for people like you. It was like writing it for myself as a younger person. And it really, I hoped it would be an encouragement to others who are struggling to find that path.